Romans 8, 28 through 39, starting with verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Nice to know, isn't it? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who contemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is ever at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of, uh, the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, these are uh, Romans chapter 8, just these few verses. Uh, you've probably heard a lot of these verses many times, haven't you? Uh, probably people have quoted them. You didn't realize that so many of them were in that same little section uh, because things like, uh, if God be for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors. It's the same text. This eighth chapter is actually such a rich chapter that it's taken us a few weeks to get through it. There's so much here, and frankly, we could spend a lot more time than we have. Uh, but uh, if you are taking notes, uh, this is our part three of Kept by the Spirit, uh, this time secure. Kept by the Spirit, secure. This is essentially our part three uh, of Romans 8. And we'll look at three things tonight in the text, sovereignly called, I'm sorry, sovereignly conformed, sovereignly conformed, sustained in peril, and success guaranteed. Sovereignly conformed, sustained in peril, and success guaranteed. It starts off, now we covered the 28th verse, we know that all things work together. I was just using that as a bridge verse, bridging us from where we were at in our previous study. But verses 29 and 30, uh, there are people uh, that use these verses, uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, many I have relationships with uh, you know, that, that, that certainly love the Lord, uh, that believe in five-point Calvinism and the tulip uh, I do not subscribe to that. Uh, that's not a, uh, neither myself nor uh, Calvary Chapel. It's not to say that uh, I don't understand why people arrive at that point. I do understand why people, uh, you know, whether it be John, all the way back to John Calvin and others. Uh, but uh, when we look at these passages, uh, there are certainly, uh, there's a lot to be said in the scriptures about predestination and election, which uh, none of us should dispute because it's in the Scriptures. Uh, the question is, is there also free will? 
That's the, that's the question. So, uh, and the reality is the scriptures, we see both. There's absolutely, you, you, you can no more, you can no more remove predestination and election than you can remove free will. They're both taught uh, in the scriptures, and we'll take a look at that uh, in just a minute. But uh, the, the general uh, thing I want to point out here is in verse 30 where it tells us, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Uh, we see this chain, the links in the chain to the eternal view that God has. He foreknew. Do you and I, fore, do you and I foreknow anything? Only what God's told us. <laughs> so now we, we foreknow that Jesus is coming back and he's going to take us home to be with him. We know that now, but we only have that foreknowledge because God gave it to us. God has foreknowledge without anyone telling him. He just knows everything. But we have foreknowledge when God tells us. When he tells us something, we, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Okay, I now have that foreknowledge. But if he didn't tell us that, I don't have that foreknowledge. So he foreknew, he predestined, he calls, he justifies, he justifies, and then he also sees us seated in the heavenlies, which is the glorified state. He sees all the way to the end of us seated in the heavenlies. And I know that in our small human brains, it's hard to get our heads around, well, if he knows everything, then didn't he just automatically move all the chess pieces and no one, no. We know that this, is tr- this isn't the case even all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, he can't tempt any man, nor does he cause any man to sin, but he gives man a free choice, as he gave Adam and Eve way back there. But, he, but because he gave them a free choice and he foreknew and sees the consequences, we know that he's also slain his very own son before the foundations of the earth. And we actually see that uh, in verse 32, he delivered up his own son for us all, knowing that that would be the only blood sacrifice that would satisfy the wrath of God, which we just sang about a few minutes ago. That would be the only thing that would satisfy it. But we see here that God uh, is not going to abandon his sons and daughters, as, as we've been looking at this kind of theme of kept in the spirit. Uh, he's not going to abandon us at any point in the eternal chain. Those of us that believe on the name of his son, he is going to keep all the way till we're, until we're glorified. Aren't you glad of that? As your body, as we saw in the previous studies, your body is falling apart. If you're older, you really know this. Those of you that are younger, you'll join us soon. And I'm in middle, I'm in mid-age, and you know, the people that are older than me say, you ain't seen nothing yet. You know, once you get out of your 40s, you'll really, you'll really have an appreciation for it. But he's going to see us through all these things. And he sees us all the way to our glorified state. So what Paul is really trying to do here is he's not so much making the case, although he mentions it, that God, un- that God has predestined or there's election. He's really making the case that God will see you through to the end, that God has already seen. So if God has already seen you make it through, you can be confident that you'll make it through. That's what Paul is pointing out here. But at the same time, let's take the opportunity to understand that the Bible clearly teaches that God 
does elect and he predestines. And then at the same time, we want to understand, so where does free will fit in? We'll take a few minutes on that. This will not be an exhaustive study. This is something that Christians have debated <laughs> for many years. So we, we're not here to actually go into that kind of in depth, but we want to understand it for just a minute. Um, when he says predestined, he also here is speaking to what will take place in our life. Notice that it says in verse 29, predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Even the, uh, you, could even, you could even say that the greater point that Paul is making, in addition to the fact that the soul, God knows the, pre, he knows the end state or where all, each of us will choose as far as uh, Jesus Christ, what we'll, what we'll believe, what we'll choose not to believe, and ultimately where we'll end up. But beyond that, those that are believers... Uh, He's saying that we as believers are not only predestined for salvation, but that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. And by the way, that doesn't uh, doesn't only, uh, we don't end up conforming to the image of Christ. In heaven, that process has already begun. Amen? We're already being conformed into the image of Christ. Uh, he has placed his spirit, and we talked about the, the, the number of times that the Holy Spirit is mentioned in this text alone, just this eighth chapter, the number of times God, Jesus, the Son, they're all mentioned. You see the Trinity is, is so full and so rich in this eighth chapter, uh, but the Lord is going to conform us to the image of Christ well before we get to heaven. The good news is heaven is going to be the full confirmation of it, Right? Right now is God doing a work on us, and he, you know, we are a block of wood that he is conforming and shaping into the image of Christ. When we get to heaven, we'll see the full fulfillment of this. Um, and now when you think about uh, the fact that we have election, in other words, God says, I have chosen Tim, or I have chosen John, or I have chosen Sue, or I've, cho- I've chosen them, but at the same time, we have scripture that tells us that we have an opportunity to say yes or reject the gospel. You ever, you ever told anyone about the work God has done in you and you, then you share the gospel and they rejected it? Did, did God reject it or did they reject it? Certainly not God. God doesn't reject truth. It's that each person makes that decision. And this, uh, you know, so the fact that you actually have both taught in the scriptures, and some people, they can't get their head around that, and, I, and I'm one of those people. But I accept the fact that it is God's spoken word. What do I mean by that? Well, do we have eternal security? Are we told to abide in Christ? Yes. Amen? Did Jesus say to abide in him? Mm-hmm. Do we have eternal security? Yep. So eternal security is dependent upon God, and yet we're still commanded to abide in him. And you might say, well, why, was, why should I have to abide in him if he's eternally secure? Because he said so. Right? He will never kick you and I out, but we're free to jump and say, I don't want it, and I don't want to be a part of this. Now, I don't believe that the soundly saved person will ever jump out. 
I believe that it goes back to the eternal security anyway. And you can go round and round with this, but the point is both are taught. Eternal security, that we are sealed until the day of redemption, that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, right? These things are, are, are clear, but at the same time, we're told to abide in Christ, to make our calling and election sure, right? That, there's a, uh, that we're not to fade away or uh, walk away from the faith as, as many did in the Old Testament. They said, you know, they just basically walked away. And Ezekiel uh, talks about this as well. Yeah, you have the other, a couple other just similar concepts where the Bible teaches two simultaneous truths. Again, eternal security, abiding Christ. Election, free will. How about this one? Simple one that even our children would probably recognize. Is Jesus the Son or is he the Father? Yes. Right? He's the Son and he's the Father. I mean, no one has taken it upon themselves. Well, false religions have. <laughs> you know, uh, Islam, of course, doesn't believe that God has a Son uh, that's e- equal to himself. Uh, you know, Jesus is not uh, equivalent to the Father. Of course, Jesus is not only equivalent to the Father, he is the Father. His, one of his names is ever lasting father. So you, uh, you could do a study about Jesus as the father, you could do a study about Jesus as the son, and both are simultaneously true. But again, the, to the point that both are taught in the scriptures, in Ephesians 1.5, it says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Wow, that sounds like God handpicked us for salvation, doesn't it? It's true. He has. Ephesians 1.5 is in your Bible. No matter, matter whether you're Armenian or Calvinist, it's still in the Bible, right? Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to his good pleasure. Revelation 7.14, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. He even ensures that they will remain, uh, you know, in the you know, if you talk to folks that have a Reformed theology that believe that, uh, that there is the uh, perseverance of the saints, again, that God will make you faithful. And, uh, and we are sovereignly conformed to the image of Christ. There's no question that God, there's, there's no way without the power of the Holy Spirit that I would have ever grown an inch. How about you? We don't take credit for it, and yet we're commanded to abide in Him, to walk in the Spirit to be renewed daily. Paul's going to talk about that when we get to the 12th chapter, that we need to be renewed in the Lord. And these things are our responsibilities, and yet God will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, Chuck Smith had this to say. Uh, we all love Chuck. Uh, God used him in a great way to, uh, to establish uh, Calvary Chapel. And he, he says this. He says, of course I believe in predestination, since it's plainly taught in scriptures, the doctrine could be assumed even if the word was never explicitly used. It's a thrilling truth that doesn't upset me at all. The fact that he chose me and began a good work in me proves that he'll continue to perform it. He wouldn't bring me this far and then dump me. Paul, Chuck has a way with words. But there's no question that God has chosen us, but at the same time, let's look at the other side of the coin for a second did we a free will say yes, or were we robots? How would you, what do you think? I believe he gave us a free will 
to say yes or no. And some people think, well, if you say that you had a free will, that means you think you're really, really great and you, you, know, you, you would automatically, no, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that God is so sovereign, he can give free will. This is what, uh, this is what 2 Peter 3, uh, 9 says. You guys know this passage. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, if God is not willing that any should perish, and we know that people do perish, and we know that people do go to hell and reject God, is God not able to stop them? Because he said he's not willing that they should perish. Well, of course he could stop them, but he gave them free will. What about 1 Timothy 4.10? For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. You ever heard of living atonement? He didn't die for all men. That's not what Paul writes first in 1 Timothy 4.10. He's the Savior of all men. Buddhist, Muslims, Roman Catholic, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, atheist. He is the Savior of all men, but especially and particularly those he will bring to heaven with him because they believed especially those who believe. In other words, his salvation was, it was available to all men, but not all men received. Many men said, not interested. Remember, there was, there was two thieves on either side of Jesus. They got the same message. Matter of fact, one tried to preach to the other one, what are you doing? This, this man's innocent. Same message. One says, I don't believe he's the same. If he really was, he'd get us down from here. The other one said, I believe he is. And Jesus gave him one of the most assuring statements in all the scriptures today, you'll be with me in paradise. Talk about uh, assurance of your salvation. When Jesus is speaking to you from the cross, uh, you're going to be with me today. Done deal. Just because you believe, which is what 1 Timothy 4.10 speaks of. John 3.16, you know it well. For God so loved the world that whosoever, anybody, doesn't what's your background. Whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 5.40, Jesus said this, but you were not willing to come to me that you might have life. Who was not willing? The individual. Jesus said, you were not willing. Jesus speaks on it right there. You had the free will, but you were not willing. John 6, 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. This is the will of God that everyone who would see Jesus and believe would have eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. How about Matthew 23, 37? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one that kills the prophets and stones those who sent to her, how often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under wings, but you were not willing. Jesus says the indictment is not that you were chosen. In other words, that there's doctrinally, there's believers that love the Lord, that believe, well, some people can't re they couldn't receive Christ even if they wanted to. That's not what Jesus says. He says you weren't willing. Not willing. You had the opportunity, but you would not believe. And then uh, how many times in Scripture it says your faith? It never says God's faith when it comes to salvation. 
Jesus says in Luke 7, 50, then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You'll never see in the scriptures, God's faith has saved you. The Holy Spirit's faith has saved you. Jesus' faith has saved you. The person has to commit saving faith with the free will. So God's given everyone the free will, but they have to then put forward saving faith and say, yes, I believe. I believe. I mean, it's amazing what people will believe, isn't it? I saw TMZ said, really, were you there? I saw CNN said, really? So-and-so said, people will, and people will believe it. I don't know how many times I've gotten people forward an email to me, pass this on and I'll check it out and it's not true. They've believed it. And yet God says something, I don't believe that. I'll take my chances. Not willing. We are sovereignly called though, but at the same time we're sovereignly called, we're being sovereignly conformed by the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the blood of Jesus to change us from the old man. Yes, when we came to Christ, we did believe. We by faith said, yes, Lord, I believe in you. And now we continue to see him shaving away more of the flesh in us and continually conforming us to his image. And praise the Lord, when we die, we won't have to have that process anymore. He will immediately take away any remnant of the flesh and sin will be gone, a distant memory. We will never see it again. And then we'll see him as he is and we'll be in his likeness as opposed to right now we're being conformed to his likeness. Yes, he lives within us, but we still also have that sin nature that we're battling against, that we're having to put to death the flesh day by day, year by year, week by week. Let's look at what, he, uh, what the text goes on to say. What then shall we say if God is for us, who shall be against us? Verse 33, it goes on to say, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, furthermore is also risen, even at the right hand of God, and makes intercession for us. Now we saw earlier in the same chapter that the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us and groanings that uh, can't be uttered. Here we see Christ as our intercession. Of course, Christ and the Holy Spirit are one. We have the Father, the Son, the Spirit. The, the Spirit of Christ is in us, and the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf. And uh, you know, I, there's some things about the whole intercessory work. Maybe someone more mature than me has figured it all out. I have not figured all of that out. I don't know about you. But we know that Christ makes intercession, but we know that the Holy Spirit is interceding. And the Holy Spirit, of course, uh, and the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the three communicate to each other in ways that we can't comprehend. Do you understand that? Understand what we can't understand is what I'm trying to say. Do you understand that there's things we can't understand? That the Father, the Son, the Spirit speak amongst the three of them and have a relationship that we can't understand, and yet Christ is interceding, the Holy Spirit is interceding, and yet the Holy Spirit and Christ are in this harmony, and we're taking, Jesus said, and pray to the Father. And I find my times in prayer praying to all three at different times in the same prayer. How about you? Because, and yet I'm praying to one God, just the Father. 
And it's in the midst of um, our walk and our relationship in life that, uh, that we continue to understand more and more that the hand of God undergirds us, that Christ protects us, that the Father watches over us, that the Holy Spirit speaks to us and guides us and leads us. And he says, who is it that condemns? Now, in our life, we get a lot of condemning thoughts, don't we? You ever have condemning thoughts about yourself? Of course. Someone said, nope. No. <laughs> uh, we know we do. Uh, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. We see him in both the Old Testament, a couple of different passages in the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament. He actually is still allowed by God, and something I don't still understand, uh, he's actually allowed to actually approach and, and actually say things negatively about God's children, to bring a charge against them, to, to accuse them. Now, there comes a time in the book of Revelation, we know he's cast out and he'll never have that opportunity again. But for whatever reason, God gives him that access. Uh, I think one of the reasons is, is God shows that you can't really, it doesn't matter what you say, you can't touch one of my anointed. Once I have, once they're sealed by me, you can say anything you want, you can condemn, but you can't, your condemnation brings, brings you nothing. You're wasting your time, Satan. You can't separate uh, anyone. And we look at this uh, passage and we see in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Keep that thought in mind right there. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes on to say, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, naked. Now, Paul had experienced virtually all of these. Many in the body of Christ, and we live in the United States where we don't experience the oppression of the faith that our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world do. Most of what we've experienced, eh, some co-worker thinks we're weird. They don't invite us to the cul-de-sac party, right? Uh, you know, we, we don't get, uh, we don't get uh, the bottle of wine at Christmas. They give us, uh, a, a, I guess, Uno or something, right? You know, uh, what, do we, what do we give the Christian person, you know? You know, they, they don't, you know the, these are the kind of things that, uh, that we deal with for the most part as Americans. But verse 36, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Now, if you're, if you're in North Korea, when they read this, it reads like their life. Christians in North Korea are killed for being Christians. Everyone knows that, right? And China, to be tortured to be arrested, to lose your home, just because you name the name of Christ. Now, this tells you how much the name of Christ is powerful, that the world hates it that much. These are the most peaceful people in China and North Korea. They wouldn't hurt a flea. And they're hated by their totalitarian government. Exactly what Paul says. And of course, he's quoting from the Old Testament here in the Psalms. Your sake, we're killed all day long, counted as sheep as a slaughter. The second thing we want to look at briefly tonight, sustained in peril. Psalm 86, 11 and 15 says, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your mercy towards me, and you've delivered my soul from the depths of hell, or Sheol. O God, the proud have risen against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life, and yet 
uh, you have not, and yet you have not, I'm sorry, and you have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. You know, whether it was before Christ came or after Christ came, the godly have always been hated by the world. And Paul is like, this, this should not surprise you. Jesus said uh, the same thing. He said, in this world you'll have tribulation, but fear not, I've overcome the world. Uh, the world is not um, going to be big fans of Tim Tebow. They're not big fans of Tim Tebow, are they? They're not. He's not going to, he's not going to receive the same love affair from the media as athletes that choose to live, you know, oh man, so-and-so's got, you know, a couple of girlfriends and this, that, and the other, and that, that they get better endorsements, more, you know, more money, all this stuff. But the, the world doesn't, the world doesn't love those that are called by the name of Christ. But whether they like the believer or not, their condemnation means nothing. Just like Satan's condemnation means nothing. God says, "Look, it doesn't matter. I've got you in the palm of my hand. What they believe or think about you doesn't matter. What they believe or think about me does matter." Amen? What the world thinks about Tim White doesn't matter. What they think about Jesus will absolutely matter. Amen? That everyone will give an account for. And ultimately, we know they'll give an account for what they think about you and me because oftentimes their very thought is because we name the name of Christ. That's why the word Christian, little Christ. But in all these things... We can still be, as the scriptures tell us here in verse 37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors. Not just conquerors, but more than conquerors. We can still, through the trials, the tribulations, some of the things are not from the world. Some of the things are just the fact that we live in a fallen world like arthritis, right? Heartburn. More and, you know, more... Uh, grievous things, cancer, and we've had, we have, you name it, we've had people that have gone through it or are going through it right here. Some of those things are not necessarily attacks from the enemy. Some of those things have nothing to do with other people. It's just the fact that we live in a fallen world. Uh, I, I've told this here a, a couple of times, but I, I bring it up probably once every six months or so because I've never had a better definition. We were living in Charlotte, and uh, we had some friends of ours that, that lived there that their little boy, he was like three or four, falls down, scraped his knee really good. I mean, it wasn't just a little scrape. I mean, it was one of them ones that, you know, apparently the skin is peeling back kind of thing, and his mom's, you know, trying to bandage him up and clean it and trying to console him, and he's like, it's okay, Mom. These things happen because we live in a sin world. And it's true. People would have a healthier attitude if they just understood that concept, Right? If God's really out there, why? You know, all these things. I say, the reason they're out there is because the world rejected God. What do you, we live in a sin world. And just like cancer starts to eat its own body, uh, the sin that's in the world eats the world. 
whether it's me trying to weed out the weeds in, my, in, in the flower bed, whether it's uh, just trying to stay healthy, whether it's trying to get a good night's sleep, and then you add on top of that that Paul says, hey, and on top of these things, many other distresses and even persecutions from the enemy. Remember Jesus talked about when the seed is sown, uh, a couple of the places where the seed falls, one is persecution for the word's sake, and one is the cares of the world. But persecution for the word's sake is something that the believer can expect. Paul told Timothy, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. You mean everyone? Everyone. That's not always the same. It might be just family members. Talk behind your back. Right? That happens. They never think we know. We could even coach them what to say. Oh, it's worse than that. We love Jesus this much, you know? But, you know, these are the things that, um, that the world will give these condemnations, but they don't stick to us. Jesus said, look, Paul, he's, he's speaking through Paul, none of these things you should allow to change your focus. You keep your eyes fixed on the author and finisher of your faith. Paul said it this way in Acts chapter 20, verses 23 and 24. Would you agree that Paul had a pretty rough go at it as far as life? Not many people, you know, go from where Paul was. <laughs> he was on the top, had the power, had the position, had everything, and, you know, had the, had the wind at his back. And then follows Christ, and now he has the wind coming at him, gale force, hurricane force, virtually the rest of his life. And he said in Acts chapter 20, verse 23 through 24, he says, the Holy Spirit testifies, how about this, the Holy Spirit testified to Paul that in every city, chains and tribulations await me. Yippee! Thank you, Holy Spirit. <laughs> The Holy Spirit testifies that in every city, saying that change and tribulations await me. But you've got to love his answer in verse 24, Acts chapter 20. But none of these things move me. That's the way God wants us all to respond. Amen? But none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. He, he didn't mean joy, did he? He just said chains await him in every city. He said his life didn't even hold dear. He couldn't possibly mean joy, except for the fact that joy, Jesus said that he had joy because the cross was set before him. Only God can give us joy. The same Holy Spirit, think about it, the same Holy Spirit that testified to Paul what was coming is the same Holy Spirit that gave him joy. See, God not only gives you the task, but he gives you the bus fare too. He, not, he gives you the job, and he gives you all the resources for it. He doesn't just give you the job. He says, I give you the job. This is what I want you to go do. Go to this city, go to this city, go to this city. Well, how am I? It's almost interesting that the Holy Spirit was actually revealing to him something in the, in the actual statement. The fact that he would get from city to city means he'll make it through each time. Plural. In the cities, in every city. In every city, you'll get through, and not, not, 
it doesn't say plural there, but in every city. You'll make it from city to city. They'll try and hold you down, but I won't let them, is what Philippian jail was a perfect example of this. Instead of being jailed, God sends an earthquake, releases everyone. Oh, by the way, a bunch of people get saved in the process, including the jailer, and this helps grow the Philippian church. Only the Lord could do that. He goes on to say, the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 57 through 58, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding. I think of like Tigger. You know, just uh, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Have you ever encouraged yourself with that verse? Is that just me? Where sometimes you look in the mirror and say, Lord, is this in vain? But then when you test your motive, say, Lord, here's, if it's pure, you immediately feel refreshed. Now, if they're impure motives, if it's pride, if it's for self, that's wood, hay, and stubble, then you're going to have to like set a little bonfire over your motives and then go back to the verse after you've done that. But if the motives are pure, if what you're doing is, you, A, you know God wants you to do it, B, you know he's uh, empowered you to do it, C, you know your motives are for his glory, then if you feel down and not abounding, then you can actually re-preach to yourself this verse and actually be refreshed and say, oh, okay, this isn't in vain. It's not in vain. That helps parents, you know, with kids a lot. Is this really working, Lord? Is this, you know, the, the, you know sometimes these kind of things. But you know it's not in vain because the process... Um, I was talking to a brother just today. We've come to learn in life, this is especially true in the Christian life, everything of value that I've found out of my 44 years now, everything of value seems to be the hard things. Easy things never seem to have any value. You ever notice that? I mean, you, you really start to see it the, the longer you go through life that the real valuable things you learn were the things you did not want to do. Was where you, that, they were most valuable. And they, they've come back and they're valuable to me today. You know, work ethic that was taught to me by my father uh, and, and I still think I can have a better work ethic and grow in that and mature in that. But nevertheless, that was a good thing. But, it, but a lot of times it wasn't easy, and I was grumbling the whole time. And I wasn't even abounding at the time. Now as a believer, God still will put us through similar process because he's our Heavenly Father, and he says, go mow the grass, spiritually speaking. And I'm like, it's 98 outside, Lord. Right? And you're the same way. God tells you to spiritually go do the dishes. Spiritually speaking, to go do the laundry. But I'd rather watch TV. Or I'd rather do this. Or I'd rather do that. All right, God says, go, go to Bon Air on a Sunday night where it smells like ammonia. If you're lucky, some nights, go in there and battle, get your sword, the, the Bible. Go in there and watch me work. Oh, I'm wiped out. It's been a long week, Lord. Right? But then when you go 
and then you see God move, that those are the things that he teaches us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding. The church is so movable, right? The church is way too movable, don't you think, in America? Very, very, you know, the slightest thing. I got the sniffles, oh, I guess I can't help, right? Oh, this knocked, this, this, is, a, this is an immovable thing on my calendar. And God, you know, a lot of times I now just tell people, I say, okay, if that's true, why don't you go pray about it? Oh, you didn't have to say that now, did you? If that can't be moved, if God can't move that on your calendar, if such and so, such important thing, God, why don't you go pray about it? And then see if God would have you either go against the grain and just say, I'm going to do something different and not do what the, someone else said I have to do calendar-wise and let the Lord instead work. We move forward in faith. Understand this. We move forward in faith in obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by how we feel, but what we know. If you don't remember anything else, remember that. We move forward in faith and in obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. If I didn't have the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't make it another day in the Christian life. And neither would you. Because there's, as Paul said, there's nothing good that dwells in us. Amen? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So there's nothing good in us, but that we need the Holy Spirit. But we move forward. That's why I'm so, I'm so thankful for this in my hand. We move forward by what we know, not by how we feel. What we know, not by how we feel. It really helps us as a parent. Because I know it feels better for my kids to eat cotton candy. But I know something they don't know. Now they know. We've, we've actually taught them. But there was a time where they wouldn't have known. At the age of three, they wouldn't have known the difference between cotton candy and oatmeal. They could taste the difference. But I know one is good, and I know one is bad. doesn't matter. How, well, this one feels better going down. I know it does. Don't be misled. What you know is what his word says. You know my favorite verse, 2 Timothy 1, Joe, for this read. But listen to the, I always read the second part of the verse. Let me read the first part so you understand the context when Paul says it. I always read only the second part. I want to read the first part. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know him whom I believed in and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him unto that day. The first part of the verse says, for this reason I also suffer these things, and yet I'm not ashamed. What, what Ashamed of what? He's not ashamed of the name of Christ, but he also suffers because of the name of Christ. Nevertheless, he's saying, I know whom I believed in. Not how I feel. I know what God has told me. It's so comforting to do what the Lord says because he said it, and we know it's true brings us to our final point. I'm going to wrap this up in five minutes. Success guaranteed. The last, the last two are very closely related. And just the last two verses, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Success guaranteed. Success to the world is, is so often, not always, but often success to the world is to be loved by men. To be respected by men. The recognition of men, and I mean men, women, people in general. Or, how about this? Success of the world is to love and serve yourself so you find fulfillment. Self-actualization. Self-awareness. Self-healing. You know, self. So either to be loved by men... You know, I, I, I graduated high school in 1987. I'm pretty sure it was 1986 that Whitney Houston had this song called The Greatest Love of All. Remember that one? I even thought the lyrics back then were iffy to me because I never had a trouble, any trouble loving myself at that age. You ever seen teenage boys? They love themselves. So that song didn't, you know, it didn't, even, it didn't even register as all that meaningful to me then. Uh, you know, I, Whitney Houston, great voice, all, I get all that, but the song itself... But the, you know, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. It's not even in the top three loves. Number one, we're told to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's far superior <laughs> than learning to love yourself. Number two, you're told to love your neighbor as yourself, meaning that you already love yourself. So you don't have to learn to love yourself. You have to learn to love your neighbor. And watch the toddlers for the first time downstairs, and you'll learn this is very, very true. They do not naturally love their neighbors. Nor do you and I naturally love our neighbors. Nor do we naturally love our brothers and sisters, spouses, friends, anyone else. So learning to love others is, we know, a greater love. And we know learning to love God is a greater love. But to be loved by God is infinitely greater than the first two. Would you agree? No matter how much you and I can love God, God loves us infinitely more than we can love him. Amen? All of our collective love for God would fill a thimble. Because the Bible says our righteousness is what? Filthy rags. That tells us that our measure of being able to love God and love others is pretty... Thank God for the blood of Jesus. Amen? The bar is low for us because his blood. And this is why he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's the greatest love of all. Not the song in 1986. The greatest love of all is God's love for you and me. He then gives us by his Holy Spirit the power to actually love him back and to love others, both greater than our love for ourselves. That we would eventually be able to lay down our life and lay down and be a selfless servant. And hopefully the longer we walk, Lord, we walk in that love more. But the greatest love, success to the believer, success to the believer is that although we may not get out of life, what everyone else is pursuing. 
And we shouldn't want to get out of life what everyone else is pursuing. Because God changes our priorities and changes our thinking. I used to want certain things that everybody else wants in this world. But then I got saved and God says, that's not for you. They want to chase the wind. That's their choice. But you don't chase the wind now. You follow me. Well, we may not get everything out of life that everyone else is pursuing, but we will never, no, never, never be separated from the love of God. I don't know how more clear Paul could make it. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth. Paul's like, do you get it? This is the great, Paul's saying this, if I could write a song, Paul might would say, I would write the greatest love of all, but it would not be learning to love yourself. It would be learning to receive the love of God would be the greatest love of all. And that he would not only never separate us from that love, but when we see him face to face, he'll lavish that love on us in a way we've still yet to experience the full marriage of the bride and the groom coming together. Now, we're already, we're already betrothed to Christ, right? We have the betrothal relationship, kind of like Mary and Joseph. Remember, they were betrothed to one another, though they had not come together in full marriage, but they were fully married, but they hadn't experienced the full aspect of their marriage unity, and neither have you and I until we actually come. We're already married to Christ. We're already betrothed to Christ, but the full, when he gives us the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we see the whole, we'll realize, and of course we won't have any sin cloud in our vision, we'll realize how much the love of God. Paul is describing something that the Holy Spirit gave him. Paul probably can't describe it adequately enough because it's too big for him. Amen? Even things he saw when he, uh, he couldn't, some of the things he wasn't even allowed to say, but he couldn't describe them all. He's doing the best he can with what God says. You can write this, write this, write this. The rest is by faith. We have to know that God said it, and that's enough for us to say, no matter what comes my way, I can be a conqueror in the Lord. I can be steadfast. I can be immovable. I can be abounding, not because of my own strength, but because I believe, and there's power in believing. Amen? The just will live by faith. Last verse that kind of sums this up. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would transform our lowly body. Sorry if you think you have a great one. Our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. 